This is the Enneagram Sandbox, an insightful yet playful look at the Enneagram through the creative mind of a joy-seeking seven. There's magic in the sand, no cats allowed. Welcome back to the Enneagram Sandbox. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode two of season one, and today's episode is all about ones, and my sandbox is magic. You know, it's a portal to other dimensions, don't you know? To parallel universes, to alternate realities, because the sandbox you see is my own imagination. And I build castles in it, and mountains, and towns, and rivers, and then I knock them all down, and I build them all up again, just for fun. And I'm inviting you to come and play with me in the sandbox, but it looks like you're already here. So let's play, and as we play, Let's consider this like we would a trip to an all-you-can-eat buffet of different perspectives. It's a buffet of different perspectives, you see, because I'm a seven who wants to try a little bit of everything at least once, so buffets have always been kind of just mind-blowingly awesome to me. But let's look at the Enneagram information in a similar way. Let's ask questions, let's sample, let's challenge assumptions, let's pick the things that we like, even try the things that we don't, but please, Keep your overly negative, critical kitty cats away from the Enneagram sandbox because you know those overly negative, critical kitty cats tend to, you know, what they do in sandboxes. Anyway, no cats allowed. So today, as I was digging around in my sandbox, my little plastic shovel hit something really hard. So I reached down with my hand and I wiped the sand away really gently and lo and behold, What I uncovered sparkled in the light because I found an ancient box. Yeah, I found an ancient box. And inside of that ancient box was an ancient scroll. Yeah, it was written on papyrus or something like that. Written on that scroll was a whole heck of a bunch of garbled wisdom. And luckily, I learned how to speak garbled wisdom when I was a kid, so I translated it. I translated that thing that I found in my sandbox. I really did. Do you want to hear what it, what it has to say? Do you want to hear it? So I was amazed to see that it was written by a woman over 1,300 years ago. Now remember, it's imagination. It's my sandbox. This is where all this is happening. Her name was Matilda Ihaba. That was her name, Matilda Ihaba. And this is what she said. She said, I, Matilda Ihaba, having been born 1,300 years ago. Wow, wasn't that nice of her? She told me like right at the start, so I didn't have to do carbon dating or anything. I just knew right from the start. She said, I do hereby make a record of the way I see the world as determined by my Enneagram types. Yeah, see, it, it is ancient, 1,300 years ago. For yea, verily... I thus say to all those doubters out there that the Enneagram really is a totally ancient tool. That Those are her words, not mine. Because obviously I know about it, and like I just told you, I lived 1,300 years ago. I mean, why would I make this up? All this stuff was written on the scroll that I found in my sandbox, but this is the really good part. So she says, for verily, I am what is known among my people as a one a perfectionist, a reformer. And as a one, I know deep at my very core that, and here's what she knows, 
deep at her very core. That everyone is connected. That we're all playing different roles in one unified whole. And we're all perfect as we are, even with our differences. We are all enough. Isn't that neat? Isn't that a really neat, deep core truth that Matilda Ihaban just knows? But then she goes on to say, that is a core truth that I have forgotten. And because I've forgotten it, I live most of my days believing that everyone should just be good and do good all the time. Someone who does something good doesn't need acknowledgement or to be rewarded for simply doing what they're supposed to be doing anyway. But people who do bad things and break the rules, well, they do need to be recognized. They need to be punished and made an example of. That's, again, Matilda Ihaba's words, not, not mine. And then she goes on to say, because... That became a core belief in my fundamental worldview. I'm, I'm so impressed, really, that she knew about worldviews back 1,300 years ago. I mean, I guess they did. Why wouldn't they have known about worldviews back then? So she says, I grew up focusing on things that I thought were good, being responsible, reliable, following the rules, and never letting anyone down. That's how I feel worthy of being loved, loved by others and loved by myself. I have very high standards, and I suppress the anger that I feel when I see others not doing what they should be doing. I suppress it because showing my anger isn't usually the right thing to do, but I certainly carry that anger inside of me. I squash it way, way down, and frequently I find that I'm holding on to a lot of resentment. Oh, that's, I feel bad for her that she's feeling so much resentment. But I know people like Matilda Ihaba. I know them today. And she goes on and she says, when I look out and I scan everything there is to see in this world, the things that I most focus on are right and wrong. And definitely what needs to be corrected. I hate it when people talk about nuance and subtlety. Things are either right or wrong. They're good or evil. They're of God or of the devil. Lukewarm stuff, it just gets spewed from my mouth. I've got no time for gray areas. They just feel weak and wishy-washy to me, like someone in the wrong is trying to justify themselves. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! People use a lot of different words to describe me. Words like conscientious, precise, perfectionist, consistent, reformer, improvement-oriented, self-controlled, detail-oriented, responsible, caring, critical, inflexible, intolerant, opinionated, judgmental, self-judging. But don't be confused, dear people, who will be living in the future 1,300 years from now, says Matilda Ihaba. She says, I have several strengths. One is very strong. One is a great person. You want a one in your corner. I have several strengths. Integrity. I'm honest to a fault, she says. Or at least I try to be. Reliability. 
If you ask me to do something and I accept it, I will definitely do it. And I'll do it the best way I possibly know how. And I'm industrious. I won't accept excuses for not getting a job done. I will find a way and I'll make sure that it's the right way. Trustworthy. I mean, please, this is what I live for. My most basic fear is being corrupt or evil or being defective. And my most basic desire is to be good, to have integrity, to be balanced. I just wanna be loved, is that so wrong? I'm so glad that Matilda Ihaba took the time to write this on a papyrus. I don't know if she did it for a school class. You know, maybe it was one of those things where 1,300 years ago they said, write this on a papyrus, put it in a box, bury it in a sandbox, and then uh, 1,300 years from now somebody will bury, you know, or dig it back up, and you can see where you are now. You know, I, I don't know, that's kind of a long time period to do something like that, but it's pretty cool that I dug that up in my sandbox this morning, right? But guess what? I dug up even more things, too, because there was this long black cable wire. And when I put my ear to it, I heard people talking. And actually, when, <laughs> when I was a kid and I was playing in my real backyard sandbox that I actually had, I really did dig up a black cable one day and I really did put my ear to it and I pretended to be hearing a conversation in China that I sort of um, ahem, interpreted right there on the spot for my friend Brian. But anyway, this cable that was in my Enneagram sandbox links us to Don Riso, who is a well-known Enneagram teacher and co-founder of the New York-based Enneagram Institute, and they have a wonderful website with a ton of great resources for anyone interested in learning more about the Enneagram. And I will link to the Enneagram Institute from my website. So let's put our collective ears up to this black cable wire and hear what Dawn has to say about healthy, average, and unhealthy ones. Personality type one, the reformer, the rational, idealistic type. Here's a short profile of some significant healthy, average, and unhealthy traits of this type. Healthy ones are reasonable, truthful, and highly principled. They're also conscientious and concerned about ethical standards. They have a strong sense of morality and care deeply about the dignity of their fellow human beings. Ones maintain strong personal convictions, are self-disciplined, and practice moderation in all things. They care about excellence and have high personal standards by which they live. Average ones are highly idealistic, always striving to do better and to improve the world. They become reformers, advocates, teachers, and often are agents for social change. But they begin to feel obligated to improve everything themselves, while also getting angry about the indifference of others to their efforts. Average ones become orderly and well-organized, but can also be impersonal, rigid, and emotionally constricted. They may become highly critical of themselves and others, driven, judgmental, and perfectionistic. Unhealthy ones have severe problems with anger, usually expressed as extreme intolerance for the viewpoints and weaknesses of others. They may become bitter, harsh, and totally inflexible in their positions and policies. At their best, however, High-functioning ones are exceptionally wise and realistic. 
They live a life of discernment and nobility and can be inspiring moral heroes who guide others by their personal example. You can be reasonably sure you're dealing with a one if the person fits most of the traits I've just mentioned most of the time. But there are other telltale signs you might also want to be aware of. Ones are the kind of people who really get upset when they can't remember if they've turned off all the lights, shut the windows, checked the gas, and locked the doors before going to the grocery. You can't leave anything to chance, and everything has a place and everything in its place are their mottos. Ones are nothing if not thorough, neat, and well-organized. The kinds of people whose socks and underwear are folded neatly, whose file folders are labeled and filed alphabetically, whose pencils are all sharpened, and whose erasers are still fresh, since they rarely make mistakes. In a more serious vein, ones are the kinds of people who have deep convictions about right and wrong, about what is just and unjust. They're often dedicated to reform and social causes since they feel personally motivated to improve the world and leave it a better place. They put themselves on the line for their values and ethical convictions, even if it means risking their jobs, their fortunes, or even their lives. Ones are convinced that there are indeed some truths, some values, that are worth both living and dying for. As children, ones were good boys and good girls who learned to discipline and restrain themselves and postpone rewards until their work was done. They often disliked or distrusted authority figures who they usually saw as unjust or arbitrary or indifferent. As a result, young ones decided to take the issues of reward and punishment onto themselves. Their own consciences would be their guide. They were praised and rewarded for being adult and rational at an early age and may not have had a very happy or carefree childhood. As adults, ones take responsibility for fixing the world themselves. Their battle anthem is, if I don't do it, no one else will. While this motivates ones to do a lot of good, especially for social causes, it can cause other problems. Anger flares up at others for not taking an equal share of responsibility or for not working as hard. Ones also become angry because others seem to be having all the fun. The work of cleaning up the mess everyone else has left always seems to fall on them, and ones don't like it. Some examples of well-known ones are Mahatma Gandhi, Hillary Clinton, Margaret Thatcher, Thomas Jefferson, Catherine Hepburn, Dr. Joyce Brothers, Ellie Wiesel, Ralph Nader, Vanessa Redgrave, Sandra Day O'Connor, and Mr. Spock of Star Trek. Back in the 60s, he was part of the free speech movement at Berkeley. I think he did a little too much LDS. LDS? Mm. Thank you, Don, and thank you to the Enneagram Institute website for providing the sound clip. Now, like I said, there's a lot of great information on the website. Uh, one of the things that it does is it shows how different types can be misidentified with others. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time sharing with you how ones can be ident misidentified with some of the other types. So misidentifying ones and twos. Now, this isn't a very common mistyping from what they say here at the Enneagram Institute, but that it does occur when a wing 
and, and a wing is the number on either side of your main number. So a, a one sits right in between nine and right in between two. So there might be personality characteristics of a nine or a two that influences a one. The one might act a little bit like a nine if they're a one with a nine wing, their predominant wing, or a one with a two wing. So in other words, a one with a two wing can sometimes be confused with a two with a one wing. But the confusion is far less likely when there's a one with a nine wing because they're more reserved and they have a relatively unemotional demeanor uh, or twos with a three wings because they're more outgoing and effusive, they say. Now, gender can influence this mistyping as well, where women who are a one wing, uh, or are, they're a one with a two wing, tend to see themselves as being a two with a one wing. And men who are a two with a one wing may see themselves as being a one with a two wing. Both types are serious. So again, we're talking about ones and twos. Both types are serious. They're conscience driven. Both like to feel that they're of service and both can be very altruistic. However, their styles and their motivations differ significantly. Ones try to transcend the personal in their dealings, appealing to principles and the evident rightness of the positions or suggestions, whereas twos are highly personal and they see their service in personal terms. Ones defend their autonomy. They don't want people to interfere with them. Twos seek close connection and even merging with other people and other types. Ones are more restrained in the expression of their positive feelings, although they let people know when they're dissatisfied or irritated. Twos may have difficulty with those hostile or angry feelings, but they're fairly unrestrained in expressing their positive feelings. So there you have some of the differences between ones and twos. And the Enneagram Institute does this for threes and fours and fives and sixes and sevens and eights and nines. So if you want to hear more of the misidentification types, I refer you to the Enneagram Institute website, enneagraminstitute.com. So ones can be mistaken for other personality types sometimes. But how are ones in relationship with other personality types? You know, this is the question that I was pondering as I picked up my green little plastic rake and started making designs in my sandbox when all of a sudden I hit another hard object. And this time I dug it up and I brushed away the sand and it was this beautiful little seashell. And I put my ear to it and inside of the seashell, I could hear the voice of one of my favorite podcasting Enneagram experts, Suzanne Stabile, who I haven't met yet, but who I want to meet soon. Now, Suzanne runs a podcast called My Enneagram Journey. She also recently published a book called The Path Between Us, An Enneagram Journey to Healthy Relationships. I got it. I got the audiobook. I listened to it. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. And here is an excerpt where Suzanne discusses ones in relationship with others. Ones and others. Ones. Ones in relationship with other ones will experience understanding. However, perpetual dissatisfaction opens the door to using improvement as the measure in most aspects of the relationship. Truly, some things are good enough as they are. Twos. Ones and twos respond to life differently. Ones are practical, while twos are relational. Ones tend to think that twos can't stay focused, while twos think ones are too rigid but both need to cultivate the art of compromise. Threes. Ones and threes both want to get things done, and both want to be the best. 
but threes cut corners, while ones believe every step of a task should be done correctly. Ones need to be careful about judging different paths toward the same goal. Fours. The emotional needs of ones are often repressed, so ones can learn from fours how to focus on feelings rather than falling into the pattern of dualistic thinking. And fours can benefit from the ability of ones to stay focused and see things through to the end. This relationship can be extremely advantageous for both. Fives. In relating to a five, ones will need to let go of the notion that silence represents judgment. Fives are silent much of the time, and they are rarely, if ever, judging. Ones need to avoid making assumptions about what others are thinking. Sixes. Along with twos and sixes, ones respond to whatever's happening right in front of them, in part because the initial reaction is to do something. Ones need to keep in mind that their way isn't the only right way. Sevens. Sevens need the discipline of ones, and ones need the flexibility and spontaneity of sevens. With some awareness, they can be a great team. Eights. Ones and eights are both dualistic, right-wrong thinkers. Both think they're right most of the time, and both have a tendency at times to react without thinking things through. On the more positive side, ones appreciate that eights are so free, while eights admire the discipline of ones. Nines. Ones have a lot in common with nines. Both repress anger, though for different reasons. They both also like to ruminate about decisions for a long time. So be aware that someone will have to step up when the time comes for action. One of the things that has helped me in my Enneagram explorations is is to better understand why I act different ways at different times. So as a seven, um, sometimes if I'm stressed out, I'll act more like a one. Uh, in times where I have more security, I might act more like a five. Now, as, as far as ones are concerned, when ones are in a time of high stress, they might act more like a four. In times of security, a one might act more like a seven. And as I was thinking about this, I found yet another thing in my sandbox, and I listened to that. And you know what it is? It's this guy named Joel Hubbard who has a podcast called Enneagram Panels. It's a fantastic podcast. And so I'm going to play for you an excerpt from that podcast where they're talking about ones and they have a panel of ones. So let's hear what Joel Hubbard has to say about ones. So yes, type ones. These are really hardworking people that deal with this internal voice that's constantly reminding them of where they're falling short. And I think that once we understand that about the type one, it gives us so much compassion for uh, for these vo- folks that tend to be hard driving and hardworking and exacting and precise. So it, it helps us understand this is, this is their work. They're having to turn from being really driven by that per- need to be perfect, need to be right, need to be good – to a place of peace, serenity, as the vice to the virtue sort of transformation happens in their lives. And so now once you understand and you'll hear this panel, you'll hear them talk about the internal struggle, from the external perspective, they look like they've got it together. Much of the time, it's really they're composed. They don't really show much emotion. So it's hard to read and they seem to be confident. Uh, But as they begin to talk about what's going on inside – 
it gives us so much compassion for them to understand that there's a drive, there's an ongoing voice that tells them they're imperfect, they're not measuring up, they need to do this better. And I think that uh, you'll see that in how they communicate and, and where their the attention of the mind consistently goes. Yeah, they talk about having that strong inner critic and everyone that we've talked to really resonates with that phrase of the strong inner critic. And we were saying in, in the first episode how if we're going to grow and go through transformation, we have to first come to that self-knowledge where we see ourselves and then we have to go through this acceptance um, in order to do the third stage of doing the work to to go into transformation. But that doesn't happen without the acceptance where it's all grace. And we're talking about it being all grace. And this is hardest for the one. The one more than any other type struggles with that grace piece. Mm. I have asked type ones in either typing interviews or in, in um, coaching, how are you doing with with grace, with showing yourself grace? And every time there's this pause and this sigh and this like, well, <laughs> it's the ongoing work, right? So – and this is true for every type. Whenever we ask the question that is where the type struggles the most, this is where you're going to get that, yeah, this is the hard part. This is the stuff that I, I really deal with daily. It's, it's really learning how to see beauty for type ones is to see beauty uh, around them. Because otherwise, they're always going to see what's perfect and imperfect. But they do have the capacity to see beauty, and that is very helpful to them. Uh, but yeah, it is the, – the whole grace component is probably one of the most difficult pieces for the one is to show themselves grace first. So if they feel ungracious at times to the world around them, it's, it's happening a hundred times worse to themselves. This is a hard path, the transformation path seems to be harder for some types than others. And a larger portion of that for the one is because of this grace piece, because there is the strong inner critic, and that is going to create a rub with the acceptance piece. So there is both simultaneously a heightened awareness of the need for acceptance, the self-acceptance, the grace, the I am enough, and simultaneously with the ever-wanting perfection. And that rub creates a very high challenge in this work for the one. All right. Thanks, guys. So that was Jim Zartman, who is the co-host with Joel Hubbard on Enneagram Panel's podcast. And yeah, it could be really hard for a one with the self-critic, but it's not all bad being a one. Being a one is wonderful. Oneeders. That's wonders. Wonder. Wonderful. Which is better than oneederful, right? Anyway. Hey, look, you're the one that got into a sandbox with a seven. So here are some tips for those of you who are interested in doing your type one work. Now, these tips come from the book, The Essential Enneagram, The Definitive Personality Test and Self-Discovery Guide by David Daniels and Virginia Price. And like all of the sources that I mentioned in this episode, I'll link to all of them on the website um, and places where you can get them, because this is like a $9 book on Amazon, and it's totally worth the price. So Daniels and Price suggest that you practice receptive awareness. So give yourself a time out several times a day and focus on your breathing. Slow down that chatter that's in your mind. Try to get into that place where you're observing 
your thoughts, observing your feelings, and ask yourself the following questions. How have I been judging myself and others today? How constantly present has my judgment been? What bodily sensations accompany this judgment? How has my inner critic made me feel today? In what ways has my inner critic been affecting my behavior? Now, if you're able to stop and reflect and become aware of these things, maybe then you can start taking some action. Because so much of the one's inner life is dominated by that inner critic, ones often suppress personal needs and desires for pleasure. So Daniels and Price have recommended the following kind of daily practice. And I'm going to want you to repeat this after me. Okay, so I'm going to say a little thing that Daniels and Price are telling you to say to yourself out there ones. I want you to say this all with me. Each day, Each day. I will consciously and deliberately include time for personal needs, natural desires, and pleasurable activities. At least some of which have nothing to do with self-improvement per se. And I will schedule inviolate time for these activities. What does inviolate mean? I will do my best to notice when internal resistance to doing enjoyable things comes up. I will do my best to notice when internal resistance to doing enjoyable things comes up. And use this resistance as a signal to go ahead and do them. And use this resistance as a signal to go ahead and do them. Can we just be done now? So there you go. That does it for today's episode, which was all about ones, but certainly isn't all there is to say about ones. It's a nice overview. It's a good place to start. But most of all, it was just a fun day in the sandbox today, wasn't it? We heard from new friends Don Riso from the Enneagram Institute, Suzanne Stabile from My Enneagram Journey podcast, and Joel Hubbard from the Enneagram Panels podcast. And I'll link to all of those on the website, enneagramsandbox.com. Now, there's a lot of depth to mine in the study of the Enneagram, so I'm grateful that I have this sandbox to dig and play in, and I invite you to come and play with me in it as well. And if you don't mind, would you take a few minutes after this episode is over, go to the website, enneagramsandbox.com, and fill out a brief survey, because I'd like to know more about those of you who are listening that will be playing in this sandbox with me. Now, if you like what you heard, Please recommend this podcast to your family and friends and share this episode through social media. You can also give us a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes or any other podcast rating service that you use. Thanks again for playing. See you next time in the sandbox. And remember, no cats allowed. The Enneagram Sandbox is produced by Ear Candy Productions. Looking for help with a podcast for yourself or your business? Check us out at EarCandyProduction.com. That's EarCandyProduction, no S, dot com. Ear Candy Productions, audio never tasted so sweet. I love it. I love it. I love it.